thank you. Uh, and, and I want to start by telling you all what I shared with the, the other three services this morning is that I, I've, for the last two years or so, Thomas and I have been in a pastoral accountability group, and I've known him for four-ish, three or four years or so, and uh, I have to tell you when we're together, uh, Thomas uses words like special in the really best sense of the word to just, not the air quotes, but the, he adores you. He loves you guys, and he talks about how great and what a special community and special church, and he doesn't think of it as like a nice building. He thinks of it as, as like the people here. So I just have to tell you, you the, your pastor totally loves you, every part of you, and so it's great to actually be here with you this morning, to be seeing faces and worshiping with you and being invited uh, to share this word and these passions of God. So let's pray. Father, as we do settle, uh, we've been worshiping. Uh, some of us have been going crazy all weekend and might even be just feeling a little tired right now. So I pray, Father, that by the Spirit and the mysterious way that you do this, that, that you conform us, you shape us in ways we don't even know or feel, that you might anoint our listening today so that this church would hear your word and they'd respond to your will for them as a community and individually, and to your work. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I note that next week, uh, based on your website and the sign I saw out in the front, what Thomas has told me, you're going to start a sermon series about uh, asking, answering the question, what does God want? I want to give you a, a similar question to start today, this message. And that would be this question. Are Jesus and I really interested in the same things? So think about this. Like, what is it that Jesus is, is actually really passionate about? What are the things that, that God, the creator, the maker of heaven and earth, the maker of you and your soul, like, what actually makes the heart of God come alive? And is my heart aligned with those same things? Or is it the case that, that I just kind of become more interested in what I want to do, and I know God might have God's interest, but, you know, that's maybe for other people, other times, or once a week. Like, this morning, I want to explore two of God's passions that most of you would probably say, yeah, I'd check the box that I think it's one of God's passions, but, but have a tendency to drift to the place of the unfamiliar or the stale because all the noise and clutter of our lives takes these passions of God and moves them out of our focus. And namely, these are God's passion for the world and God's passion for justice. First, God's passion for the world. God loves the world. And I know from experience, when I tell churches like Covenant, who actually are really devoted to studying the Scriptures and have really good biblically teaching pastors, like, you know God loves you. You hear that every week. You probably spent all weekend hearing about God's love. Yeah, we know God loves. But isn't it true that just the knowledge of that sometimes drifts to this place of being stale, unfamiliar even? Like, the passion that God has for the world preoccupies his attention with creation. Think of this this world. It is, it's a messy world. It's complex. There's billions of people stretched out over all these vast continents, 
confusing cultures and weird places and strange foods. There's incredible chaos and violence in the world, dizzying disorder. There's also beauty and life and restoration. And with all of this complexity, on a big cold rock, flying through massive space, spinning and spinning and spinning, God loves it. Some of the the most famous scriptures ever, John 3.16, for God so loved the world and he gave his son and whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. And that son who would walk on the earth would eventually love the world so much that he'd stretch his arms out for it. We even know from the Old Testament, the whole reason that God calls out a people to be his, he creates Israel, this nation of Israel, is not so that Israel would be a blessing unto itself. He calls out a people for what reason? To be a blessing to the world that God is so passionate about. I sometimes wonder and imagine what would it have been like for Jesus to wake up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee He's got these ragtag group of disciples following him around, waking up on a cool morning and about to walk along the edge of the lake, and maybe he wouldn't even know who he was going to run into that day. It would be a leper, centurion, tax collector. I don't know. But whoever he would cross paths with, one thing I know for sure, he would love that person. God has a deep, passionate love for the world that goes to the very core of what God is about. Contrast God's passion for the world, though, with what, say, I'm interested in. And if you could look into my heart and into my mind and see my thoughts, if you could look into my bank account, all these places that you might think are private, do you know what you would probably assess I am most passionate about? Me. Because of how much time it takes me to think through my needs, my comforts, my desires, and how much energy and effort goes into satisfying those things. Like, gosh, what should I have for lunch today? Thomas has promised me something really good and authentic Austin, like McDonald's or something like that. (laughs) Or maybe some of you are like, I know, like sometimes I sit in church and I watch my wife start to do her to-do list during the sermon because she knows what she needs to accomplish today to feel like she is a successful person. Or, or what is it that you need to acquire to feel safe? Or where's the place you need to visit to feel like your life has been fulfilled? All of these things, my needs, my comforts, my desires, my interests, occupy so much of our own energy. And I know that God wants something bigger than that. So there are days when I'm trying to be a better Christian that I'm actually able to think about the needs of my wife. And that's pretty noble, people. Like, that should get applause. <laughs> Thank you. I can think about the needs of my kids, and I can play on the floor with them and put their desires and their needs ahead of my own. But still, I know that God wants more than that. So it's like when I'm being super, super spiritual, like like Methodist spiritual, I mean really spiritual, like I'm actually able to think about the needs of people who like me and people who are like me. 
Because see, those people are close and they're convenient and they're safe. And if I extend a hand of help, I know they're not going to swat it away. They're not going to misunderstand it. But do you, do you see how hard it is to actually love the world? When all of this preoccupation and energy and effort gets focused on the me and the mine, the closest and the most convenient. But I think Jesus understands this about us. But just because Jesus understands it and is working with us in it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's godly. So maybe we could agree on a better goal. And that would be the, ha- the goal of having a heart more like Christ. A heart that is actually growing for its love in this broad, crazy world that God loves. And this is really the basic invitation I've been sharing all morning would be for Covenant Presbyterian to hear the winsome call of Jesus to re-engaging and re-exploring a season of digging into God's passion for the world. It's an invitation to recover the bigness of the heart that the Maker has intended for us to have. Before fear and our fallen nature and our schedules and all these things just so impoverish the richness of His love. But if you join in this journey, as you begin, I want you to go equipped with another question in your mind, which would be this. What is it that you believe that most people in the world find the most difficult to believe about the Christian faith? I know in a city like Austin, a big university town, or here in town, like you might quickly say miracles, like the miraculous. That's the thing that's the hardest for people to believe. And you, you might be right for some of the people you know or the context you live in. But I would suggest to you that the most difficult thing to believe about the Christian faith for most people in the world is simply this idea, that God is good. And it's so hard to believe that God is good because people are in so much pain. How is it believable that God is good? We know there there could be 20,000 children who die in the next 24 hours for lack of clean water or nutrition. There are 1.5 billion people in the world who have no access to health care from preventable diseases. They, they suffer from things that are completely unnecessary just because they don't have access to it. In these exploding cities all over the world, the population, there are millions of children in those cities who are living completely unprotected, no guardian. They're just simply vulnerable. How are they supposed to believe that God is good. And, and, you know, does God even have a plan for making it believable that he's good? Turns out he does. And the scriptures are very clear on this. We are the plan. And we see it really clearly in places like Matthew, chapter 5, verses 14 and 16. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. There's these earnest followers of his. And they, he says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. For me, this is a scripture, the longer I've looked at it, the harder it gets. Because Jesus is not saying, you guys are a bunch of bumbling idiots and, oh, you're going to mess this up. But once in a while, try to be the light of the world, okay? Jesus is not sitting with his disciples and saying, oh, you guys are super competent, educated, affluent, and really busy. So like in two weeks, if you could schedule an hour to be the light of the world, 
that would be super awesome. <laughs> Jesus is really plainly, straightforward, saying to his disciples, people who are earnestly seeking to follow Jesus with their life, you are the light of the world. No plan B. The only option. You are the light of the world. And I feel weight when I sit with that scripture. Like there's an expectation of response required if I'm truly going to follow Jesus. And then Paul says this most amazing thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, We therefore are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal to the world through us. What an amazing invitation that we would get to be God's ambassadors of goodness, telling and showing the world of this great goodness of God. This is why I believe for millennia Christians have done what we've done around the world. If people are suffering because they don't have food, we, we gather food and send it to them. If they're suffering because they've never heard the gospel, we send mission teams and plant churches. If they're suffering because they're sick, we provide medical care. If they're suffering because they're homeless, we build shelter. All of this activity and work and labor and sacrifice is to show that it's believable that God is indeed good. There's a category of people in the world who are suffering. And they're not suffering because they've never heard the gospel or they don't have food or water or shelter. They're suffering because they have an oppressor. They're suffering because someone else is intentionally abusing power to hurt them. These are victims of injustice. Now, the word justice and injustice is used so much in our culture, in our day, it's thrown around that it almost seems like it has no meaning. And so we're very careful to define it. We even jokingly say at International Justice Mission that justice is our middle name. It's like, we get some, ah, that was a good. So when you go to the, the grocery store and you have nine things on your list, and you grab your green basket, some of you are going to do this today. You're going to grab your green basket and you'll remember this story. And you get your nine things and you go to the front, and I don't know the laws in Austin, but in Colorado Springs, the express line is 10 items or less. And so when you get in line and you're excited to see the lines open, there's one person in front of you, you get up there with your basket and you're standing and waiting, what's, what's the one thing you do? You count. You all can admit it, because every human I've talked to about this does this. At least one point in your life, you've stood there and gone, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, they have nine items. That's all right. Or eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. 12 items. This is the 10 item or less line. I know a lawyer I could sue. Okay, that feeling is not injustice. Okay? Be really clear. Injustice is a specific kind of biblical sin. It is the abuse of power to take from others the good things that God has intended for all people. Their life, their liberty, their dignity, and the fruits of their love and their labor. So whenever one person in any way uses power to take those good things from another person, that is injustice. We see it in places in the scriptures like Psalm 10, verses 8 and 9. It says, they lie in wait near the villages, and from ambush they murder the innocent. And their eyes watch in secret for their victims. And like a lion in cover, they lie in wait. They lie in wait to catch the helpless. They catch the helpless and drag them off in their nets. I haven't been in Austin very long. Uh, I've seen some black-tailed deer and some dogs and other things, but I've not seen any lions crouching. 
So you just kind of hear these lions crouching things. And I'm pretty sure you've never seen a neighbor dragged off in a net. So this, this image of injustice sounds old or antiquated. So what does injustice look like in the world today? And I want to tell you about two people that IJM has been able to help and serve who are some of the poorest in the world as we've done our work. First, I'd like you to meet Joseph. Joseph is a family man. He, uh, his wife, Anne, and they had five kids, and they ran this small shop in a popular Nairobi marketplace near the slums in, in Nairobi where they lived. And, and Joseph was never going to get rich in this little marketplace, but, you know, they had enough. He could provide for his kids and his wife. They had a church. Things were okay. And one day a riot breaks out in this marketplace, and the police show up. It's a tumultuous election season, and these riots are happening. And the police show up, and to disperse the, the crowds, they just start shooting their guns in the air. And somehow Joseph is inadvertently struck in the arm, grazed by a bullet in his elbow. And so later that day, he goes to the clinic to receive some treatment. And one of the officers in that day lost their firearm somehow during the riot. And if you're a police officer in Nairobi and you lose your weapon, you're in line for some significant penalties. And so the officer with some others uh, from that department come back to that slum area. They go by the clinic and they find Joseph and a few other men getting treatment. And they decide to fabricate a story that Joseph and his friends attacked the officer with the intent to steal the weapon. So they round these guys up, uh, bring them to Nairobi Industrial Remand Prison. They lock them in, and they charge them with a crime, robbery with violence, which in Kenya is a capital offense. So now Joseph is charged and in prison, and because Joseph can't pay for an attorney, he likely will never even have the trial to exonerate him and prove him innocent. So when IJM hears about this story, this is the kind of injustice that we begin to engage. In 2012, our IJM Kenya and other partners in country uh, did a study of Nairobi Remand Prison and determined that as many as 20 to 40 percent of the prisoners awaiting trial may be innocent. How's a good Christian man like Joseph and his wife and kids and so many other innocent captives supposed to believe that God is good? Second, I'd like you to meet Joy T. Uh, Joy T, a, a young teenager, decided she'd run away from home to get away from uh, a difficult and abusive family situation. And so she ends up uh, in the biggest village near her, her little um, town where there's a train station. While she's there, she can't figure out what to do, but three women approach her. They're very kind to her, uh, and they offer to take her to the next village in, or the next city, and they'll get her, help her get a job at a cafe. She doesn't really trust these women, but she's desperate. She doesn't really have many options. And so she gets on the train with them, and the women bring her a cup of tea. It turned out the tea was drugged. So when Joy T. woke up, she discovered she'd been sold into a brothel for about $280 and told she'd need to work until she could pay off that debt. Joy T. says, I'm, no way, I'm 14. I won't do this kind of work. To which they proceed to lock her in an underground holding cell, and all they do is provide her alcohol, and hit her until she finally relents days later. From the very first day, she's forced to see 20 to 30 customers without ever leaving the confines of the brothel. And all of this in a city with one of the worst AIDS, HIV epidemics in our world today. So UNICEF tells us there's somewhere between 800,000 and a million children who are taken like this into forced prostitution every year. How is Joy T. supposed to believe that God is good? As Christians, as people who are here, who, are, who have decided to earnestly follow Jesus with our lives, how do we even regard 
such suffering? Well, we need to begin, of course, by asking what does God think of it? And we turn back to the scriptures in Psalm 10, 17 and 18. It says, you hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. Friends, this is actually really good news. That God hates injustice and he wants it to stop. When God is against something, that really matters. That God is passionate about justice. But that raises then another question then, right? If God is against this injustice and he wants it to stop, what exactly is his plan? And again, the scripture makes it clear. We're the plan. And we see it in scriptures like Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, O mortal, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? We would think that if God was going to be so gracious to just give us a list of three things, that those would be things we'd really pay attention to. But Micah is in a part of the Old Testament we call the minor prophets. So, like, it's minor, I guess. There's a minor message or something. There's a reason they call it minor. But then an interesting thing. In Matthew 23, Jesus is, is recorded a sermon, uh, that's, and it's his woes, his warnings to the scribes and Pharisees. And he says to them, the, the religious elite of his day, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Better that you had done both than done one and neglect the other. You see, Jesus actually brings Micah 6.8 right into this place of warning the spiritually, religious, socially elite of his day. That it's great to do all these things like weekend retreats and worship and all the kinds of things that we love to do as a part of the church. But Jesus says they need to be balanced with these weightier, heavier issues of justice and mercy and humble faith. It is we, it is you and I who are God's plan for seeking justice on behalf of the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed. We're God's plan for making it believable to victims of injustice that he is a good God. So, I mean, I know often people are like, can you really make a difference with all of the suffering and everything that's going on in the world? And I can tell you, yes, that even these tiny little things that mere mortals would do, we get to see miracles when we take risks and engage in these weightier matters. We got to see this with Joseph. Uh, after we learned of Joseph's case, we took it on, we determined he was innocent. We represented him in, in court. His trial dragged on for 16 months. And when the day came for us to, the judge to hear or to give a verdict, our attorney shows up in the court to discover the power is out. And the judge can just close the court, and all those files on the top would just move down somewhere to the bottom. And who knows how much longer before Joseph's case would come up again. So our attorney runs to the nearest market, and she buys as many candles as she can hold, and she runs back to the courthouse. And I promise you, I don't think the, the culture of attorneys in any country that this is normal behavior. <laughs> the judge, being so inspired by the actions of this attorney on behalf of this poor 
nobody client, declares the court open. And they light all the candles, and the trial is heard by candlelight. And at the end, the verdict is pronounced innocent. After 16 miserable months in jail, Joseph is able to go home, be with his wife and all of his kids. We're still journeying with Joseph and his family, trying to restore all that was lost from him, even trying to help him feel secure in public that he won't be a victim of retaliation from this corrupt police officer. But he could be present as a Christian father and and, uh, husband. And Joy T could also tell you in her own words um, that one of the other girls in the brothel uh, said, you know, I think I might know a God who can help. And as a young Hindu girl, uh, another God, sure, that's great. And if one could help, that would be even better. And so one of the girls said, I don't know anything about it, but the God's name is Jesus. And so Joy T just begins to pray, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And sometimes that prayer is answered. So within a week of her beginning to pray the name of Jesus, one of our IJM investigators infiltrated that brothel and captured her testimony on hidden video, which we then take to a secure police contact, help the police, support the police to do a raid on that brothel to rescue Joti and other minors out of the nightmare and into Christian aftercare, where then Joti would actually come to profess faith in Christ as her Savior. Within a few weeks of that, Joy T. learns that another raid's going back to the same brothel. So she volunteers to go back to the place of her nightmare to help identify other young girls. And she sees a girl named Kalindi. And a raid is chaos. It's scary. People are yelling. There's police with guns and sticks. And people are freaking out. And Kalindi sees Joy T.'s courage in the midst of the chaos. And she steps forward. And she says, I know where they've hidden other young girls. And that day, unplanned, we were able to rescue, find and rescue seven other minor girls, some as young as 12, who hadn't yet been violated. Do you see how these little acts of courage, these little steps of faith, and God just does these awesome miracles right in the midst of his people who are seeking justice on behalf of the poor. It is possible to make a difference, and we are. So how how can you respond, though, today, even sitting right here? Well, the first thing is you just... You just, we just can't be a church anymore that ignores these things. We know about it. We just can't say, oh, I didn't know. Like, the only day we have from God is today. And this is the world he's asked us to steward and to bring restoration to all things today. We just can't be a church that does nothing. And I would say for you, particularly for uh, Covenant here in Austin, that, that you have these core values of a devotion to Scripture But what does it really mean that God's people would do justice? It's in the scriptures. Study it and find it. In serious prayer, we need people to be praying for us. We're sending our investigators into some of the darkest places in the world. And we just need people to pray. And on the turquoise table, there's these prayer cards. If you fill this out today, you'll get a one email per week on Saturday that just gives you some things to praise God for and things where we really need people to pray for help for for breakthrough and movement. So you could join us and begin praying with us would be beautiful. And as a church or individually, extravagant generosity. What does breathtaking sacrificial giving look like for you to engage some of the poorest in the world who are being oppressed violently? So I invite you to engage in this journey, to use the strength that you have to participate with God in his work of justice. I'll finish with this this story. When I, I grew up in Southern California... And my uh, father would sometimes take us to do what he would call go see the sights. And so we won, uh, one weekend we went up to Venice Beach, and particularly to go check out Muscle Beach. 
Um, anyone ever here, here ever been to Muscle Beach? Okay, there's a few people. So you can testify that it is one of the weirdest places in the world. Um, so those who are not familiar with Muscle Beach, so it's like a gold's gym. Like, think of the most muscliest, buffest, like muscles popping out everywhere kinds of guys. They work out at Muscle Beach. But Muscle Beach is on the beach. It's like sand, gym, on the beach, water, and it has bleachers. No kidding. So you can sit in the bleachers, watch these guys work out on the beach. It's weird. <laughs> so we're sitting there, and, it, and I, it occurs to me like, what is all of that muscle for? Like, I mean, I guess if you have a stuck jam jar, like, you can pop that puppy open. But, like, all the lifting and working out and the protein shake, all that muscle was for posing. What occurs to me is there's a lot of strength in the American church. And I just hope we don't use it for opening jam jars. My prayer is that God would save us from the insignificant things, that we'd actually be able to use the strength he's given us for the things that he's passionate about in the world. You pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are a God that is passionate. You love us. The very core of who you are loves everything in us and about us. And that you don't leave us in the condition you find us, but that you always are working with us and moving us towards a place and you invite us to participate with you in the restoration of all things in our own neighborhoods and around the world so i would pray father that your work of justice your goodness your love would be expressed to the work and the mission of these people in this church in jesus name